As we open your word tonight, Father, bring our hearts back into where we've been and direct us as we go forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We left off with Paul leaving Philippi, headed west, southwest, along the, the northern coast of the Aegean Sea. So remember, this starts a long section all the way to chapter 19 in which Paul hits the three largest, most prominent cities of Europe, what is present-day Europe, those being Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth. And in hitting all three, he essentially surrounds the Aegean Sea, what was the heart of Western civilization in that day. Uh, now today as we, we leave, uh, you have him still with Timothy, Silas, uh, but now Luke is staying behind as he departs Philippi as we begin chapter 17 tonight. Uh, you'll notice this because uh, Luke no longer writes in the first person. The, the we's stop and they's start again. You'll know when Luke rejoins Paul because in Acts 20, Paul reaches Philippi again on his third missionary journey and the they's stop and the we's start again. So we know that Luke does not go past the point of Philippi in the second journey and doesn't see Paul again until his third stop, the third journey. So that's the background. I'll give you your map back here. And go with me to Acts 17. Let's we'll start with first verse, of course. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Given the route, we know he's walking along a stretch of Roman highway known as the Ignatian Way or the Ignatian Road. It was a major Roman road that crossed east-west from the Black Sea all the way to the Adriatic Sea. You'll see that on your map or you'll see that that stretch of, of area I'm talking about. It's about 600 miles. And just like all Roman roads, it was about 20 feet wide for the distance. And it was lined or, or paved with polygon shaped stones that were then covered with hard packed sand. It's quite an engineering feat for 600 miles. And that's just one stretch of Roman road. Of course, they, they crisscrossed the whole empire. It passed through today what we would have as modern day lands. It passes through Turkey, Greece, Macedonia and Albania. By the time Paul walks it now at this point, it had already existed for nearly 300 years. And it goes on to exist for another 500 before it finally is, is in such disrepair that it essentially disappears. Part of the reason why it disappeared was the earthquake activity just wrecked the road over time. But because of where it lay, it was a major road of commerce. It was actually the road that connected the western and the eastern halves of the Roman Empire. So it was a hugely important road for commerce. It's logical to assume then that this would have been the way Paul would have traversed in the direction that we see on the map. He would have joined this road and walked along it for its length. And as he walks from Philippi, he passes through these first two towns without even bothering to stop, much less preach the gospel. Now, the first two towns are not insignificant towns. They're not, uh, you know, like sometimes when you're driving outside of San Antonio, you know, you pass little towns that are barely more than a stoplight at best. That's not the situation here. These towns had significance, yet Paul just moves right through them. Then Luke makes this point that he stops in Thessalonica where a synagogue of Jews existed. And we know that there is no record of a synagogue in either of the first two towns historically. So what we're concluding then is that it seems Paul wouldn't bring himself to bring the gospel unless he could do it to the Jew first. It's not enough for him to say, when I have groups of mixed Jew and Gentile, I'm going to go to the Jew first. He took it as a more central mandate to his ministry. He was going to keep walking until he reached a town where there were Jews. And then having the opportunity to preach to a Jew first, 
then he would also be available to preach to Gentiles in that location. So that lands him in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a very large city. It was about 200,000 strong in, his, in Paul's day. It was the capital of the, of the Macedonian province of Rome. While Paul stays here, we know from his letters that he initially received support from the church in Philippi. That's how he was able to do his ministry when he reached the city. He was getting money sent to him from Philippi. But before the money started to flow, he supported himself through tent making, as he writes him in his letters to Thessalonians. All right, so that's a little background. Let's go back into the text. Verse 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, meaning the Jews, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So as we've seen before, he goes to the synagogue first, as I just described. And Luke says something noteworthy here in the way he describes Paul's technique as he approaches this town. He does something differently here than we've seen up till now, or at least a little differently. Paul reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue. The Greek word for reason has a root from which we also get the word dialogue. He dialogued with these people. It's a rational discourse, in other words, on Paul's part. And then Luke says Paul explained and gave evidence that Jesus was the Christ. Now, what kind of evidence do you think Paul offered? What does Paul bring that's, quote, evidence that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ? First, he would give an eyewitness account of his own testimony. That, that much is unique to Paul and it would have had some power, but that probably by itself wouldn't have been convincing because you don't know whether to believe him. What he does secondly, and I think more importantly, he uses scripture to make his argument for him that Jesus was the fulfillment of what Old Testament prophecy said was coming in the way of the Messiah. And notice Paul does it by explaining that Jesus had to suffer. It's probably not necessary for him to prove that Jesus existed or that he died on the cross. Those events are are now several decades old, but I would suspect that the news got around at least well enough that it's not altogether a surprising thing. Somebody would have remembered, yes, that happened. I know who you're talking about. Now, the real sticking point for his audience would have been that there was a Messiah who died. That's confusing to one who assumed that he would be a conquering king, not a dying and suffering Messiah. So Paul is working from Scripture to preach the gospel in a manner of reasoning to a Jewish mind. This is where he differs, where where the pattern is a little different from the past. Notice... He never produces any miracle, at least as far as the text is concerned. No raising from the dead, no healing, nothing that would let his apostolic power be shown and thereby validate his message. And it begs a question. Weren't those apostolic powers given for the very reason that they would be useful to Paul in a moment like this when he's trying to make an argument and he could validate his argument so easily by just healing somebody? It would seem to prove the point easily enough. He's done it in several other places that we've seen, but he's used them. If you go back and look, you'll notice he's used them only in the context of Gentiles. He's never used them for the Jews, for an audience of Jews. And for that matter, if we think about it, we haven't seen Paul make any effort to reason with Greeks from Scripture, as he is doing here with the Jew. He makes a presentation clearly. He speaks the gospel. It's not as though he speaks nothing, of course, but it's not the same thing as what he's doing here. It's not a reasoning, a dialogue. It's merely the proclamation when he's presented to Greeks. 
Paul seems to be consciously using two different methodologies depending on his audience. Now, both have a common denominator, and that common denominator is that both audiences ultimately hear the presentation that Christ was the one crucified for our sin. The, the essence of the gospel is not varying to fit an audience, of course. But his method of presentation does, in keeping with what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 22, he says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. When you add that verse or those verses to what we see him doing here in the book of Acts, I think we come to a conclusion with fair certainty that Paul knew what the Jews wanted and he knew what the Greeks wanted and he didn't give them what they wanted because their motivation for wanting it was wrong. So the Jews wanted to see miracles, so he would perform none. The Greeks loved to debate ideas, so he did not condescend to a reasoned argument because those fleshly pursuits only served to distract them from the truth. So Jews got reasoning when they would have preferred signs. Greeks got signs when they might have enjoyed a good debate. The message, by the way, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, was and is today a message of foolishness to anyone other than those who are called. In this case, the message finds a receptive audience with some of the Jews, as we're told, and a large number of the Greeks who attended the synagogue. That's what he means by God-fearing. These are proselytes. And then again, also a few leading women of the city. Uh, women of the city. Remember, whenever you see leading women, that's a reference to women who are married to leading men. Now, a period of time passes at this stage in the account, in the narrative. Luke doesn't really indicate that. There's nothing in the text to suggest it, of course. But we know because we can look at Paul's letters as it relates to this time period and, and see that there were a lot of events that took place before he moved on. And in particular, looking at the letters he wrote to the church in Thessalonia, he refers back to events that took place in his life while he was in the city. And yet Luke's account now moves directly to how he left the city. So he jumps over the intervening period of time. By verse 5, where we go now, there is a large and committed church established in the city. So we go from him arriving and his initial moment in the synagogue to a church, and probably one that, that was established throughout the city. Verse 5, But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received the pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Let's, let's look at what goes on here. You've seen this before, of course. The preaching of the gospel stirs up the Jews in, in opposition and jealousy and they react with hatred and they organize a conspiracy and then they use that as a pretense to kick out Paul, move him on. Now, remember, we're talking here about a city of roughly 200,000 people. Now, in ancient times, cities were a little more compact than they are today, so it's still relatively easy to move about a city of that many people and, and on foot, but it's still big. So when we hear that they're setting the city in an uproar, what it likely means is they're inciting pockets of hostility, perhaps in different places throughout the city, or maybe in one little, one concentrated area or sector of the city, either way. 
Paul alludes to this period of, of persecution, actually, when he writes his first letter to this church in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He sort of alludes to this moment. He says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. With the result that they also fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. He alludes to a comparison between the Jews that were stirred up in Thessalonica to the original ones who crucified Christ. Now, the Jews hire men, and the men that they hire here were a regular part of most large Roman towns. They were usually under, unemployed or underemployed men, low-class individuals usually, who loitered in the marketplace and offered themselves out for hire or just looked for, for trouble. One of the curious odd jobs that was, not, that, that was common in Roman culture, in Roman society, was that of a professional heckler or a professional fan or, or a plotter. And these men could be then hired to follow someone else around and heckle them throughout the day or applaud them depending on whether you wanted to harass an individual or compliment them. So when we look at these men that get hired in the court, the King James translates this passage a little differently. It describes these men, my passage here calls them evil men, but in the King James it's translated men of the baser sort. That's a term you may have heard in the past. But even older Bible translations translate it as wicked men of the lowest rabble, which is another term for evil or for no good. It's where we get the term rabble-rouser from. Someone who rouses up the rabble is someone who hires rabble to heckle people. So if you are a rabble rouser, you're stirring up these evil men to go do your bidding. So in this case, the Jews were the rabble rousers. And the effect was it started the uproar in the city. So they go looking for Paul, of course. And the crowd starts at the home of a man who they had known was housing Paul, was his host, uh, while Paul and, the tra- and his traveling companions were in the city. They search the home. They search Jason's home. They don't find Paul. He's not there at the time. And so the next best thing they do is they take the host. They take him before the city officials. They announce charges. And basically the charge is you are an accomplice, you are an associate of men who are upsetting the world, they say. Upsetting the world. The Greek word for world here is the one that means the inhabited world, the, the civilized world, which would imply that it's referring to the Roman Empire because from Rome's point of view, they were the civilized world. So it was another way to say it is these are the men upsetting our country or the empire. They accuse them of a disturbance of the peace. Then secondly, they accuse them of treason because they're trying to proselytize. They're trying to convince people to worship someone other than Caesar. Both charges, therefore, are political in nature. This goes in keeping with what the Jews have done traditionally with Christians or with Jesus in the first case, where they want the Jews, they want the Romans to play their or do their bidding. And so they have to trump up charges that will get Roman interest. Romans don't care about blasphemy. Romans don't care about imitating the Messiah. What they care about is disturbing the peace, treason, taxes, things like that. So the Jewish leaders now have trumped up these charges. Now, by this point, you can be sure 
that Jason and the other believers that are caught up in this melee are terrified. Uh, you know, poor guy, whoever he is, he's got to be nervous over what's happening because in a very real sense, his life is on the line with these charges. If they had chosen to pursue the charges to their logical conclusion, he could have had the death penalty. So uh, you, they've got him right where they want him, and they offer him the opportunity to escape that punishment if he makes a pledge, and the word pledge here in Greek literally is the word bond, as in a bail bond. So he's making a payment of money here, not a promise, but literally a payment. So they take a bond from him with the understanding that he will promise or guarantee Paul and Silas leave the city. If Jason failed at that promise, not only would he forfeit the bond, but then he himself could be subject to prosecution, just as in our justice system today, if you don't appear for your hearing, you lose your bond and you're subject to arrest again. So that leads to the result. Verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Don't view Jason too harshly here. You know, clearly he didn't want Paul to leave, but he had little choice under the circumstances except to you know, post the bond and agree with their requirements and, and their terms. I think it's also likely Paul didn't want to leave, but he must have seen the situation as God's will and accepted it as such and obeyed. And, you know, he's not going to want to jeopardize Jason any further. So Paul and Silas leave quickly. Uh, they leave uh, Timothy behind at this point. In fact, they leave at night, which was unusual. It shows you with what haste they were willing to leave because you never traveled at night in those days. You find, I think, what is evidence that Paul himself never returned to the city, and if so, it was probably out of respect for Jason. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, he says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. So he expressed his desire to return, but it, it doesn't appear to have ever happened. From there, he goes down the Ignatian Road a little further to a town called Berea. And again, why does he stop in Berea? Because it has a synagogue. The town is mentioned only here in all scripture. And its role is relatively minor in the greater scheme of things within the book of Acts. It's, it's on the scene and off the scene in just a few verses. In fact, Cicero referred to Berea as the out-of-the-way city. What we got, I guess we would talk about a city being backwater or Cicero had a better way of saying it, but that's what he was saying. And yet it's interesting how many Bible students have heard of the Bereans. That term is so well known. It's because of one comment that Luke here makes regarding the Bereans unique practice of fact checking their teachers. Luke compares them to the Thessalonians, calling them more noble minded. It's hard to tell if the comparison was intended as a criticism of Thessalonica or just a way of complimenting the Bereans by association. Maybe you meant it both ways. Luke uses the term noble to describe the Bereans, more noble-minded. The literal word in Greek is of noble birth. And it would imply they are of a higher state of maturity. And in this case, we're not talking here about a birthright or anything of that sort. But noble-minded being applied to a Christian would have to imply they are at a more noble or higher state, but in the sense of their maturity or of their practice. That makes sense in the context, certainly. 
Let's take just a moment here in passing. Let's look at why they received this famous commendation. First, Luke says they received the word with great eagerness, much as you do every Wednesday night, I'm sure. I will interpret what I see in your faces as great eagerness. The Greek word here for eagerness actually has a much more subtle meaning than the way it's translated in my Bible. I don't know why they chose this word, frankly, because its literal translation would be readiness of mind. Not eagerness, but readiness. Eagerness, I guess, being similar in some sense. But the Bereans were literally ready to receive what Paul preached. Now, how do you become ready to receive the gospel? It's, it's got to be through the Spirit's work. But on a practical level, how do I, as a student of, of Scripture, and they were students of Scripture even before they knew the gospel, right? How do you prepare yourself for what God is going to bring you in the case of the gospel itself? It has to come down to being a knowledgeable student of what the Old Testament said prophetically concerning the Messiah. So that when Paul began to preach from the Scriptures, to reason from the Scriptures, about how Christ was, Jesus was the Christ, they would have already been familiar with the Old Testament as it concerned these prophecies. And it would have made them much easier, much easier for them, as they heard Paul putting two and two together, for them to say from their own memory of Scripture, yes, Paul, that's what we've been looking for. That makes perfect sense. Imagine yourself as a teacher, for example, lecturing a room of students on some topic. Would you rather lecture to a group that's done its homework and is familiar with the material already, or would you rather teach a group who hadn't done the reading and hasn't got a foggiest notion of what you're talking about? Which one makes your job easier? I can tell you from personal experience which one I prefer. <laughs> and the Bereans were more noble-minded because they had done their homework, in a sense. So they were prepared to hear about the arrival of Messiah. They had read the Old Testament prophecies. They knew what to look for. Once Paul explained it, it made sense. They recognized it. Now, how do you take that and put it into the context of the church? Because we often take this passage or this, this comment about the Bereans and use it in discussing what is the priority or what are the goals of someone in the Christian faith today. Well, we'll talk about being Berean. I mean, there's small groups that call themselves the Bereans, right? We respect what the title suggests. Students of the Bible. But if the real context of it was being familiar with the Old Testament so that you could be prepared to receive the gospel, how do I move that forward into a Christian context? Well, the the emphasis today would change from an understanding of how the Old Testament speaks of who Christ is. It would change not in the sense that we stop caring about those things. It's still valuable to study the prophecies of the Old Testament and understand how Christ fulfilled them. But we would move beyond that as a Christian now. And we would be understanding from Scripture in our walk how to hear the Spirit's call and respond to His direction in light of the New Testament covenant. In other words, if, it's, if it was the Bereans' call in life to be ready for the Messiah, it is our call in life to follow the Messiah. And that difference is minimal at best. And the source is the same in both cases, the Scriptures. So to the degree I am familiar with what the Word of God says, I am much more likely to be able to hear and follow the Spirit than someone who isn't. Noble-mindedness in our context would be a, a readiness to hear God in our daily life based on a close walk with Him and His Word. That's what made them noble. That's one of the reasons they were called noble-minded. Secondly, Paul says they are in this habit of fact-checking, of checking the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was telling them was actually the truth. They aren't going to let anybody get away with teaching error. This is an outgrowth of their devotion to study of God's Word. I find it inseparable in my own experience. To the degree that I become a steady, 
consistent student of Scripture, I'm also much more attentive to error and much less likely to accept it when it's presented from another teacher. They go hand in hand. And by the way, that's not limited to a spiritual context. You can draw analogies to almost any other learning situation. To the extent I know about science or to the extent I know about grammar, I'm much less likely to accept poor teaching on the same thing. It's not just that they took it upon themselves to do the fact-checking. It's a reflection of how much they care about what, what is true and what is not. They were always ready to learn, but they insisted on checking. The, the corollary there is no one's rank, no one's uh, title, no one's pedigree put them above fact-checking. If you have to check the Apostle Paul, then who don't you check? And they're commended for it. They're not criticized for challenging him. They're commended for it. Therefore, we should check our pastors and our pastors should check each other. And, and a pastor who is checked in the sense of how the Bible expects it to be done shouldn't be offended. But rather should commend those who would want to check their facts. Uh, you might imagine that someone who, who plays my role and has an opportunity to, to reach people through the Internet is probably someone who gets a lot of fact checking. And uh, that's exactly what happens. I get emails from people who say, you know, you made this comment. Uh, I looked it up. That wasn't right. And I take every one of those to heart. I respond as much best I can to acknowledge it. I go update my notes. I do whatever I have to to make sure I don't make that mistake again if I can help it. I know other people who do the same thing. That is what we should do. If you meet someone who is a teacher who will not accept fact-checking of themselves easily or with a, with a good attitude, they're, they're showing evidence they don't have a teachable heart. And the worst kind of teacher is someone who doesn't have a teachable heart. I'm convinced they stop being a teacher at that point. They just become a tape machine. They're just repeating what they've been told in the past. You can make a third observation easily that their noble-mindedness extended to a teachable heart, that they themselves were willing to alter what they viewed as truth because what was presented checked out. As logical as that sounds, it's an, there's an awful lot of people that won't do that. I find it not the least ironic that the term Berean is thrown around a lot, but the practice of the Bereans isn't as much as we think it is. The kind of noble-mindedness on display here has fallen out of fashion in the church, and that may explain why the church suffers so much at the hands of false teachers and bad doctrines. Back to the pattern that we've seen before the Jews begin to harass Paul. Verse 13, when the Jews at Thessalonica found, found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him. As soon as possible, they left. I said earlier that Timothy stayed behind in Thessalonica, and I'm wrong. Obviously, he stayed behind in Berea. That's what I meant to say earlier. So Timothy stays behind in Berea. Now, in this case, Paul's harassed by the Jews, but he's not harassed by Berean Jews. He's harassed by the Thessalonican Jews a second time. They come all the way. That's 50 miles they walk just for the privilege of giving Paul a hard time a second time. They use similar tactics, stirring up the crowd. You have to get a sense here of just how hateful and spiteful these Jews are, that they've made it a mission now to keep Paul moving away from them. In response, the newly established church here does what the previous one did. They send Paul away, probably for his own good. This time they say he's sent as far as the sea. Now, if you have your map, you look, he changes direction now. Instead of going west, he starts to go more south-southeast, back toward the Aegean Sea. Now he leaves Timothy and Silas behind, which I assume he does, hoping that that goes unnoticed, because the persecution seems to be centered mostly on Paul himself now. 
It's likely, in fact, that this time around, the Jews came so quickly from Thessalonica to Berea. Paul had barely spent any time in Berea before he's being kicked out again. If that's true, and I think that is true, then it's also the case that the Bereans would not have had the benefit of a lot of of Paul's teaching, not a lot of doctrinal development and and discipleship and so on. And that may be why Paul felt the need to leave uh, Silas and Timothy behind. They weren't he wasn't ready to walk away from this church. Paul leaves here under a Berean escort. He eventually catches a ship at the port just south of Berea, headed for Athens. The reuniting of Paul with his three companions, Silas, Timothy and Luke, is a complicated set of activity that spans quite a few years. And the details aren't recorded here. But just to piece it together from what we know in the books of the the later chapters of Acts and some of Paul's letters, here's what happens. Paul will get to Athens here in a minute. We'll see that as we go through the rest of the chapter. Then later from Athens, he sends for Silas and Timothy and Berea to come down and join him, which they do. After they've joined him in Athens for a time, Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica and he sends Silas to Macedonia from Athens. Paul, meanwhile, goes from Athens to Corinth by himself, spends time in Corinth. Later, Timothy and Silas meet up with him in Corinth. Then, finally, after the three of them head back to Antioch, when Paul begins his third missionary journey, that's when he reaches Luke again in Philippi. And we hear about that or see that connection in Acts 20. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of ministry to be done. He's using these men. They're not just puppy dogs following him around. They're actively involved in helping with the ministry, and he sends them out at different times. So now, as he gets ready to go to Athens, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So he's in Athens. Athens is the intellectual capital of the Roman Empire, even in this day. It had once been the most developed city in the entire world. Now that has since changed. It's now Rome. And Athens has gone through a period of decline, but it's still significant. It still retains its intellectual pride. It's kind of the Berkeley of the day or something like that, I guess. If not, pick your own city. Maybe I've got the wrong one. Now, while he's in Athens, Paul can't help but notice the city was a center of idol worship. If you've traveled to Greece, I haven't been to Athens, but I hear from people who've been there that there's still plenty of of evidence through the ruins and like of how much of that was going on in the city. It's unlikely that the idol worship extended into the Jewish community that congregated within Athens. Uh, Nevertheless, he begins his ministry to the city by going to the synagogue as usual. So he's provoked to minister to that city, but does not neglect the pattern of going to the Jew first. But his intent here is to get to the Jew so that he can get to the city that has the idols. Not so much because the Jews themselves were worshiping idols. I find it helpful to remember as you stop here at this moment... And consider, as the passage itself says, verse 16, now while Paul was waiting, it's helpful here to remember that even while Paul is waiting, waiting for what he really was intending, waiting for his companions to arrive, waiting for the next stage of the missionary journey, he never stops working in ministry. Because as he waits here in Athens, he notices an opportunity by virtue of the idol worship that's taking place. Ministry is what happens while you're waiting for the next mission trip. This is Paul's opportunity to engage in that culture, even on his own. He knows that the marketplace is the place he has to preach. The marketplace here was a large square in the heart of any major city. Athens would be no different. And it would be surrounded by prominent buildings and public spaces and shops. And what Paul begins to do in this context, in this setting, is classic street evangelism. 
We really haven't seen Paul do this yet. This is a new thing, a new style for Paul. We've seen him go out to the riverside. We've seen him teach in synagogues. We've seen him invited into men's homes. But here you have what we today would call street evangelism. Goes down to a busy downtown corner market where there's no prospect for an outbreak of, of, of faith per se, but he's going with a, with a confidence that God will work through him because he's put in there. And in this classic moment, you have Greeks congregating around the square precisely because they want to hear men who would engage in debate on topics of the day and, and the latest thinking on, on whatever the issues are. To them, Paul is just another voice, albeit one with the truth, but they don't know that yet. He's just another man competing in, in the crowds. Today, you'll see this. I've seen this myself. I'm sure you have too, but you get the guy with the megaphone. He's going to come, but he's going to be the loudest. And, and what is when we went, we brought burritos to people who were poor and living in the, in the city square. Whatever works, right? You get their attention and then you move from there. Paul is a short, not very eloquent Jewish man in a Greek city. He really has very little going for him in terms of catching people's eye. But the nature of what he says does catch attention because it is so different from what they typically hear. Verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what does this idle babbler wish to say? Or what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. The more things change, the more they stay the same, isn't it? <laughs> Epicureans and Stoics. Let's talk about them just for a moment. They represent two competing viewpoints and largely opposite viewpoints in Greek society. Epicureans were followers of a Greek philosopher called Epicurus, who lived at the end of the fourth century B.C., Here's their view in a nutshell. They believed that it was impossible to determine or learn pure truth. Truth was unknowable in its pure sense. So they maintained that the pursuit of truth was a pointless pursuit. So they basically gave up in any attempt to learn what is fundamentally truth. Therefore, they said the chief pursuit of life should be pleasure rather than knowledge. You're liking this already, I can tell. And... They also believed that there was no afterlife, that all you, your only existence was the here and now. And the gods, whatever gods there were, lived in a calm, independent, separate world of their own. They had nothing to do with the affairs of men and didn't care about men, had no contact with men. All of this meant that the Epicureans were effectively atheists. Though they acknowledged the existence of a god, it did them little good because there was no afterlife and no consequence for the way you lived and so on. Yeah, they just put it all out of their mind. It was all about the here and now and about pleasure. So the result was their life was, an, was a constant effort to maximize personal pleasure. It led to hedonism. Inevitably, it dissolved into a, a pursuit of debauchery, essentially, because there was no consequence in their mind. In fact, if you are atheistic today and Darwinistic, for that matter, then logic dictates you would be Epicurean. There's no basis for morality Anything other than that makes no sense if you don't believe in an afterlife. If there's no consequence, why wouldn't you make the most of what you have now to do? The nice thing about the Epicureans is they were just upfront about it. You know, this is how we believe life should be. 
That was the effect of the Epicurean point of view. Now, the Stoics lived at the opposite end of the philosophical spectrum from the from the Epicureans. They followed a man called Zeno who lived in the third century B.C. Stoics get their name from the fact that Zeno would teach in a place called the Stoa Portico or porch in Athens. And so his followers became known as Stoics. We use the term Stoic now in a way that reflects what they taught. The Stoics uh, highest goal of life was to detach from all emotionalism and to live in perfect agreement with nature and with reason. So the only good in the world from their point of view was virtuous living in perfect harmony with reason. So that was your pursuit. Perfect harmony with the natural laws and with reason. The only evil in the world, therefore, was the lack of reason or the lack of, of perfect harmony with the world. Death was not an evil. Pain was not an evil. And conversely, pleasure and joy were not good. They, they, they had no relationship to good and evil. As a result, Stoics then would maintain this brave, indifferent attitude in the face of anything. Pain, suffering, death, joy. They were neutral, if you could be, in the face of those external stimuli. So they would repress emotions, repress joy, repress happiness, repress fear, repress everything, regardless of the consequences. That was their way of minimizing those distractions and leaving themselves open to pure reason and not emotionalism. Roman society, by the way, was particularly attracted to Stoicism because as Romans typically do, they value seriousness of purpose, endurance and and bravery and so on. And so Stoicism was was quite popular. And that's why we use the term stoic. Being stoic means being emotionless and, and a blank face. You can see how Stoics and Epicureans would follow each other around. Right. Because everyone needs a foil. Otherwise, the debate process goes nowhere if it's a room full of Epicureans. Who believes in pleasure? Oh, okay. Any other topics? What are you going to do next? So when they hear Paul, they take note of his odd message. They say he is a babbler. Who is this little babbler? And the word babbler literally translated out of the Greek is seed picker. Not meant in in this compliment to him. And they say he is preaching about strange gods. And they say that because he's mentioned Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the reason they can say God's plural and yet he only mentions Jesus. They only say because he teaches Jesus in the resurrection is because of a play on the Greek words. They think he is preaching about multiple gods because they hear Jesus and this other God called resurrection. And the reason they think resurrection refers to a second God is because the Greek word for resurrection is anastasis. And in Greek, in in Greek society, there was a God called anastasis. So they hear the word anastasis, Jesus and anastasis. They think he's talking about two gods. So they judge Paul worthy to join them in this little special debate society that they hold separate from the market, often another part of the town, a place called the Areopagus, which is we Romans called it the Mars Hill. And as Luke says, this was a place where men met to debate ideas back and forth. They really had no purpose in the debate except to engage in it for entertainment value. This was debate for the sake of debate. And into this setting, Paul is thrust by God with this huge opening for the gospel. Now, I'm finishing there for the night. I didn't want to get into what he does next without time to explore it. So we're going to pause there for the night. Father, thank you, Lord, that we did um, learn so much tonight about the way your word is, is held in high esteem among those in Berea and how Paul himself, Father, was true to it in his work. And Father, perhaps more than anything, help us to see how we may serve you in our everyday walk because... If we learn nothing else by watching Paul at work, Father, it was that he was an ambassador for Christ everywhere he went. 
and that we as well, Father, are called to the same mission. Thank you for a church that lets us preach the word here. Thank you for the room and the opportunity to meet. And may we come back next week as you give opportunity to finish in this chapter and move on. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.